Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Nina Totenberg about her new memoir, Dinners with Ruth a memoir on the power of friendships. Nina is the National Public Radio award-winning legal affairs correspondent. Her Supreme Court and other legal coverage has won her every major journalism award in broadcasting, including the prestigious Edward R. Morrow Award from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and Broadcaster of the Year from the National Press Foundation. Nina has been recognized seven times by the American Broadcasting Association for continued excellence in legal reporting and has received more than two dozen honorary degrees. Nina Totenberg, welcome to That Said. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. So you've written this wonderful book, Dinners with Ruth, a memoir on the power of friendships. What made you decide to write it? Well, Simon & Schuster bullied me into it. <laughs> this is the truth. So... I just always have said no to book offers. I have a day job. I work very hard at the day job. I wasn't interested in writing a book. I didn't keep a journal in all the years that I knew Ruth. I'm sure there are a million stories I don't remember. And Koki is dead and she would have reminded me of some, but she can't do that from wherever she is. And so I just, I told them, A, I didn't have enough material to write a book about Ruth. And B, I didn't want to write a book. And there were a whole bunch of other things. And, and Mindy Marquez, my editor on this project, is the person who called me up. And she said, well, would you talk to the CEO and the publisher? And I thought, well, it's just churlish not to do that. So I, I said, sure. And Jonathan Karp told me what his idea for a book was, which was that it would be a memoir sort of organized in terms of the friendships that I had with lots of different people and my life uh, over the years. And I thought that was at least doable, but the answer was still no. And I kept giving him all my list of answers. And, 
and he kept flicking them away with some solution. And finally, my husband walked in and he was my ace in the hole. And my mouth was open to say the words. And my husband doesn't want me to do this because he figures he has to share my time enough as it is. And that's reasonable to me. And I care more about my marriage than I do about you. And he is listening to this back and forth. And he said, I think you ought to write this book. <laughs> so I was stuck. <laughs> so I was stuck. And I agreed to in a moment of weakness and got it done as fast as I reasonably could have. And it's my first and my last book. It's an interesting book because the title Dinner with Ruth is one thing, but really it's an ode to friendship. Ruth is one of the friends, as you say, Cokie Roberts and Linda Wertheimer are others, but it's really about friendship and the importance of friendship. And we'll talk about that toward the end, because like you, I think showing up for friendships is one of the most important things one can do in life. Right. So let's start, though, because it is memoir, too, about your illustrious career. Tell us about your family a bit and your rise in the world of journalism? Well, one of the reasons that I was interested in writing the book is that my friends, and I say this, by the way, to young people who don't want to go back to work, and people say to me, how did you have so many friends? The answer is basically, I met them at work. Either they were not at my workplace, but I was covering them and met them that way, or they were at my workplace and they became my closest friends. And, but when I started out, I was the only woman or one of two women, every place that I worked, there weren't other women until I came to NPR. And it was, you know, in the reporting field, largely dominated by women for the simple reason that they paid us so little, no man would work for that money. That's how long ago it was. And and those women became my closest friends, along with my sisters, and eventually Justice Ginsburg, and other people, male and female. But it was important to me because the women of my generation came up at a time when there was no glass ceiling. All we were trying to do was get a foot in the door. And I think it's important for younger women to understand how recently life was like that for women and how lonely it was in the workplace back then and how things have changed so much for the better. Your household growing up was a cacophony of of sound and, and people. And so I read this and I think, well, this is why Nina Totenberg is such a people person because she grew up the daughter of a, a virtuoso a violinist in a house filled with activity. Yeah. Yes. I mean, he was always working, but always a father. And it was an interesting thing because my father was at home. My father was either on the road concertizing, playing with orchestras all over the world, or he was home practicing and getting ready for the next tour. Or in the summers, we went to Aspen, for example, and then ultimately Tanglewood. And he would be teaching and playing. And so I knew my father better than a lot of people uh, knew their fathers because he was home. Yes, he was gone a lot, but he was also home a lot. 
And my mother was his facilitator. She did everything from, you know, taking dictation for and writing his correspondence to being with him when he made recordings to say how things sounded. And she did everything with him. And they were quite the duo uh, and an unexpected duo, I would have to say, because he came to the United States in the 1930s and made his debut here and was a succes fou and came back and decided this was absolutely the country he wanted to live in. It was the, by then the late 30s and he could see the handwriting on the wall. My mother was American. She wasn't a musician. Uh, she was for her era old, an old maid. She was 24. And he fell for her hook, line and sinker right away. And she brought light into his life at a time when it was a very dark period for him because everybody he knew in Europe was disappearing, including his family. And he managed to get his mother out on one of the last ships out of Portugal, actually. Um, I think it left Portugal. And, but his sister, I'm named after his sister because he thought she was dead. Her name was Janina, and that's why I'm Nina. And um, she didn't die during the war. She escaped from the Warsaw Ghetto with her daughter. But everybody else pretty much was dead. You say of your mom that you learned from her not to be afraid to ever ask a question. She was a pip. So she tell was, us a little, tell us a little about that. She would have made a great reporter if she'd been born, you know, 30 or 40 years later. Um, and she, she was always curious about everything. And the story I tell in the book is that she was at a big party. And she's introduced to Dean Rusk. And she says to him, thinking that he's an academic dean, she says, so Dean, what is your field, your specialty? And he said, it's Mr. Rusk to you. And when she told this story, she would just go into peals of laughter telling about it. So, okay, he put her down. It didn't matter. She got a great story to tell. That's right. And you say of that, you very quickly learned that you were interested in watching what went on and telling people about it rather than fighting the cause itself, yes? Yeah, I think so. And I think I did learn that really when I was in my teens, when I read The Making of the President in 1960 after President Kennedy was elected and Teddy Wright wrote this. Really, it was the first of its kind book. And I read every word and I thought, this is work I could do. I don't I don't really want to be in a cause. I want to be a witness to history and I want to tell people about it. And, you know, in a way, I'm a high class gossip. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes I'm an explainer and sometimes I'm a high class gossip. Well, I always followed your explaining. I've told you this a million times that when we were each covering Bush v. Gore and, and the Clinton impeachments, and I had a TV hit, I would always say, oh, God, I hope Nina's on radio first so I can hear what she says, so <laughs> I can just you. say what, what she said. That's high praise. Well, it was true. It still is true. So tell us about Ruth, because her upbringing was a bit different than yours. Hers was totally different. She had a sister, but her sister died like when she was like one. And so 
I think her father was very depressed over that. And her mother became ill with cancer and survived, I think, for many, many years, largely to make sure that her daughter would have her in her life. And her mother's idea of making it was that she would be independent, able to support herself. And that was not something really available for women at the time. And Ruth was a, you know, a stellar student. And she, her mother died the day before she was to graduate as valedictorian from her class. And so she didn't show up. And her friends actually said that they just, they understood that her mother had died when Ruth didn't show up for graduation. And she goes to Cornell, she's 17 years old on a full scholarship. And she meets eventually Marty Ginsburg, Martin, AKA Marty Ginsburg, who became the light of her life in a lot of ways. And he made her laugh. That was, the, people always used to say to her, how come she was such good friends with Justice Scalia? He made her laugh too. Um, and they shared a passion for the law. But we have to remember, you know, Marty gets a lot of credit for being a great husband and a wonderful chef. The fact is that he was one of the probably half dozen leading tax experts in the country. He was no, you know, he, he, he was a great, a first-class brain himself. So the two of them were amazing together. The difference was for a long time, he had the opportunities and she didn't. When they marry and graduate Cornell and he's accepted to Harvard Law School and she, having taken a constitutional law class and saw the brave lawyers fighting McCarthyism, decides, I can do this too, but she becomes pregnant. And she has a conversation you tell in the book with her father-in-law, who you say gave her advice that stood her in good stead all of her life. So can you tell us about that? So first they went off to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and where they were for two years while he was in the service. And she got pregnant in Oklahoma and lost her job, her GSA job uh, in the Social Security Administration because she was pregnant. And so then when they come back, Marty is a year ahead of her. And she says to her father-in-law that she's worried about whether she can do this or not. And he says to her, look, Ruth, if you don't want to do this. Nobody will think the lesser of you for that. But if you do, you will find a way. So she had a two-year-old toddler and she took care of Jane. Little did she know that Marty would eventually get testicular cancer while they're at Harvard and she would take care of him, take notes for him, get all the notes for his classes, type them up, help him write his paper, do that like between midnight and two or three in the morning and then turned to her work. She often got only three or four hours sleep. And it set in place a lifetime of staying up incredibly late to work. Mm. I think the exact quote that you have in the book is the father-in-law telling her about her decision whether or not to go to law school is, if you really want to go to law school and become a lawyer, you'll stop feeling sorry for yourself 
and you will find a way. Yeah. And she doesn't have any evidence of feeling sorry for herself no. throughout her life. And she always did find, find a way. way. <laughs> yeah. So in 1971, you're working for the Observer paper and you're interested in a case that's coming up before the Supreme Court, Reed v. Reed. And Reed v. Reed is a case in which there it's is a, case, a... Reed v. Reed was the case in which she filed, Ruth filed her first brief in the Supreme Court. And it is a case in which the Supreme Court subsequently held that women are protected by the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And the court struck down a law that treated men and women differently for no discernible reason. And I didn't really understand something. And I called her up. I flipped to the front of the brief. It was written by a Rutgers law professor named Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I called her up and I got an hour long lecture. And it was the beginning of a long, almost 50 year friendship. And you continued to converse by phone. And it wasn't until sometime later that you meet at a, at a boring conference, you uh, play hooky together, and you're off for, as you say, 50 years of friendship. It was sort of a Casablanca moment for you guys, <laughs> right? You're, you're in a taxi cab, and she's telling you about things. And She was you... very mad because she had been turned down for a district court judgeship uh, by the senator's screening committee. It was Senators Bobby Kennedy and uh, Senator Keating. And they told her she didn't have enough securities experience. And she muttered, how much experience do you suppose they have in discrimination law? Uh, so, but she got turned down for that. But eventually she did make it to the Court of Appeals here in the District of Columbia. And that's when we really began to see more of each other. In this, what I call Casablanca moment, Louis, this is the beginning of a, a beautiful friendship. You say, and I think this is instructive, you say, the Friendship began in some way because, quote, we were similar in very significant ways. We were outsiders to the world in which we operated. We both had our noses pressed up against the window pane, looking inside and saying, hey, men in there, let me in. Exactly. Yeah. And it was it was amazing to me because Ruth was more than a decade older than I am. And she was much more accomplished in the legal world by the time I've made that first call, but she was having the same experience as I was. And part of her legal crusade to achieve constitutional equal protection for women in all spheres imaginable was that because of that. And so I, it was very somehow reaffirming that even she, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg was having trouble getting her foot in the door. She goes to Rutgers, in fact, because she can't get a, a law firm job, just like Sandra Day O'Connor before her. And uh, she stays there until she goes to Columbia University Law School, where she's the first tenured female professor. And like you, you're the first woman in much of what you are doing as a journalist, and you write, for women of my generation, it was not natural to find an immediate group of friends at work. Indeed, for more than a decade, 
every job I had, I was the only woman and I reported exclusively on men. It was lonely work if you were a woman as you were fighting to get a chance. The workplace was not a haven. It could be very much the opposite. Yeah. And it is a haven today, I think, for most women, if they show up anyway. <laughs> you, you, might, you might glean from this that I have an opinion about going back to work. Well, we're, we're know, doing this interview behind me are a ton of files. Well, the thing of it is, is that my wife, who was a, a law partner at a large firm in D.C., and I, uh, Deloitte partner and Justice Department, feel the exact same way, that the friendships you forge in the work environment are not substituted for by a text or a, a Zoom call or anything other than human interaction. Yes, and I even believe, you know, at some point, I'm texting back and forth with my travel agent, for example, and I say, just call me. We can do this in two minutes. Just call me, for Christ's sake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a constant refrain between my son and myself. And he says, just text. And I say, it's not the same. And it's not the same to not hear the person's voice, actually. Well, it's not the same, but it's also way more time consuming and complicated if you're trying to do something, if you're trying to figure out something together, like, what flights are you going to take? And, you know, it's, if it's, if it's more complicated than send me the options and I'll pick one, then if you're taking a trip for pleasure, for example, I'm doing this in terms of travel arrangements, but it's right. It's, if you're doing this in terms of what you, what can I bring for dinner? What are you having? What's the wine? What you just call. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to back up a little bit and then go forward, which is to say, you wrote, I just gave you the quote, which the workplace is not a haven. It could be very much the opposite. But things change for you in respect of that in 1975 when you walk into the doors of National Public Radio. And right. it was quite It was a, really pretty amazing. So talk yeah. a little bit about that. Well, most of the key positions were then or soon would be occupied by women. So Linda Wertheimer was covering the Hill. Um, there were women covering the White House. There was a woman covering the White House. There was a series of women covering the White House and one guy eventually. And there was me covering the legal beat, the House and Senate Judiciary Committee. I also covered the intelligence community and every scandal that came up. But we only had one program. And it was an hour and a half, not two hours. And it was at five o'clock, not four o'clock. It was a whole different media geography in a way. So, you know, now we have digital, we have podcasts, we have social media. Uh, we, we at NPR have three big news programs a day that are two hours long. That's a huge beast to feed. I could never cover the territory that I did back even 10 years ago. As, that I do today. Today, I'm much more siloed in covering the Supreme Court and issues that are coming up to the Supreme Court and what's going on at the Supreme Court. Uh, because as much as I would love to cover, you know, uh, for example, the trial of one of the Oath Keepers, which in the old days I would have done simultaneously, I can't. I just can't. There's too much expected of me, including. For digital, if you cover the Supreme Court, what I do anyway is I do extensive pre-writes 
So I do as many as sometimes six versions in June of what the court is going to do in a particular case so that we can get it up fast, plug in what the quotes are from the opinion and get it up online fast. And that just wasn't even in anybody's brain 10 years ago at this institution anyway. But the thing that I thought was most telling was that you walk into NPR and it becomes, as you called it, the old girls network. And it creates a family. You and Koki and Linda become a family to one another. Susan Stanberg a little bit less because she's got a little different role to play. But and she was on a different floor also. We sat together. Koki's desk and mine abutted each other. We looked at each other as we were sitting there typing, typing. And I could hear when her daughter called and said that her daughter, when she was, I think, eight or 10 years old, they closed school and they sent them all home on buses. The theory being that mommy would be home, but mommy wasn't home. And so there's her daughter being dropped off and nobody's home. And she raised such a stink that I think they started notifying people, parents, when they were sending kids home. I mean, it, it tells you how different life was then. But it formed lifelong relationships um, right. for you, which is, again, the refrain of mm-hmm. show up at work, you'll make friends, and it'll have a whole different experience. So now back to Ruth. It's 1980. She wants to be a federal judge. And uh, luckily for her, Jimmy Carter has a plan to put more women on the court. And she tries to get on the second circuit, the New York-based court, because she lives in New York. Right. That, didn't, that didn't, had that work out? And what was the ultimate outcome? Ultimately, the job went to Amalia Kears, a very able African-American woman lawyer, Wall Street lawyer. And then the next job opening was that she was aware of was on the DC circuit here in Washington. And as Marty used to say, she got the job and they decided she applied for it and they came, et cetera. He said, she got a better job. So we moved to Washington and and she was there until 1993 when President Clinton nominated her to the Supreme Court. Right. And you write in the book that she moves to Washington and neither of our lives would be the same. So that was really the formative moment. Uh, you've had this pen palish relationship yes. or distant relationship, but now she and her husband, Marty, move to Washington and you become the most wonderful of friends. Yes. And I would say it was, you know, it wasn't instantaneous. It was just slowly over the years that became the case and then when my husband died she was unbelievably wonderful to me along with Koki and Linda and then when her husband died my second husband and I David were her allies basically in in the period of time the years leading up to Marty's death a couple of years last couple of years and then afterwards and increasingly certainly over the pandemic when I think he calculated he cooked 23 straight dinners for her every Saturday during the lockdown because our house was the only refuge, the only place where she could go other than home that she knew would be safe. 
and we would put her at one end. We put all the leaves in the table, and we would put her and Jane. Often it was it was Jane, her daughter, who would get tested and then come for quite a while, for weeks at a time. And we'd put Jane or Clara, her granddaughter, and or Jane and her husband George, or her son James, whoever it was, they have just been tested. They would be down at one end and we would be seven feet down at the other end of the table <laughs> to just to make sure that we weren't close enough to just in case there was any possibility we had been you know infected somewhere yes but the trajectory of the friendship is interesting you mentioned that you have a second husband now your first husband floyd a former u.s senator had a tragedy of slipping on ice and really going in a spiral uh, down quickly. And you say of that, that Ruth was a lifeline for you, that your friendship grew and deepened. And when you needed it most, she was there. I would say that she and Koki and Linda and my sisters were my lifeline. But Ruth, who was, you know, at the time far busier, you know, she was just hugely busy person on the court when this happened and but she had this sort of perfect pitch in terms of knowing when to call and offer tickets to the opera with her to the theater would I like to come to dinner and there's a I found uh through great luck I called her cousin Beth when I was writing the book and my editor said, did I know when this dinner was? Because she said, are you free for dinner Saturday night? We're having a family dinner uh, to celebrate my birthday. And I had a rough idea, but I wasn't sure. But the party, the dinner party, was at her cousin uh, Beth's house, Beth and Steve Hess. So I called up Beth. And Beth is just as organized, it turns out, as Ruth. And she has a diary for every year and she kept it and they were very detailed. And she could tell me exactly, I said, I think it's somewhere between 93 and 96. She found it right away because it was close to Ruth's birthday and she had it down. And then Steve, her husband, had Ruth's thank you note that Ruth had written. And it said, you know, the usual things you say in a thank you note. And it said, and I think it was really quite a spirit lifter for Nina T as well, meaning that she understood that her role was to sort of keep me afloat. <laughs> and she was very intentional about it. And she gave me wonderful advice during that time too. But then the tables turn sadly and her husband, Marty, who she, as you said, met when she was 17 at Cornell and had already survived bout with testicular cancer, of which you write, the weight and intimacy of illness and caregiving were rooted in their marriage early on. He gets sick again and passes away. And it's there for your desire. I was going to say obligation, but it wasn't an obligation. It was a heartfelt desire yeah. to be there for Ruth. And by then, Ruth had a very good medical confidant kind of relationship with my husband, David, who's, who's a trauma surgeon. 
and was the vice chairman of surgery at a big hospital here. And they became, you know, he, he was her confidant when they told Ruth that there was nothing more they could do for her husband. And he said to her, bring him home, let him die at home. And that's what she did. And increasingly when her health began to fail in the last about two years of her life, he was her medical confidant and he would often talk with uh, her doctors about what, what they could do for her. And he had even a formal meeting with her doctors and her, she and her children were there and David at Sloan Kettering before she was operated on for lung cancer. But that was not a relationship that I was privy to. And I, I was very grateful that they both realized I shouldn't be. Now, of course, my husband is a HIPAA Nazi. But in addition to that, she understood that if I knew certain things as a journalist, I would feel obligated to report them and I would be very torn. And the day that she was operated on for lung cancer, she called me that night she had a chest tube in, she was sitting up in the ICU, and my phone rang as I was about to go do a TV hit, and it was Ruth, and she said, I just wanted to tell you why I forbid David to tell you anything about this, because I didn't want you to be trapped between your obligations to me as a friend and your duty as a journalist. And it was an exquisite understanding of the position we were in, for which I was enormously grateful. But of course, it made me cry when she said that. Mm. There's something that made me cry in the book. And I don't know whether you have the book handy and can read it to us. I do. But in the book, you write in talking about marriage, because marriage, you said that you had two wonderful friends and they were your husbands. And Marty Ginsburg were wonderful friends and spouses. And you write, long thriving marriages have some of the qualities of an orchestra. They can at intervals showcase soloists and certainly there are leads, but for the orchestra to thrive and soar, the musicians need to collaborate. The harmony we hear arises from each one playing their part, which is poetic and beautiful. Thank you. And do you want me to read it or do you want to read it? No, no, I want you to read it. So Marty Ginsburg and Ruth Ginsburg are the best of friends since age 17. And now it's 2010 and he lay dying in Johns Hopkins Hospital. And he writes a note to Ruth, which I think is worth your reading to us. She read this to me after he died and I asked her to send it to me and could I use it? And then I asked her to read it during a, an interview that we had and she had forgotten to bring it with her, but the interview was at the court. So one of her judicial assistants went dashing back to chambers, got it and handed it to her. And I think because she wasn't prepared the way you normally are when you just pick it up and you thought she started to cry at the end and she, she didn't, you know, go all the way there, but you could absolutely hear her completely choke up. It says, my dearest Ruth, 
you are the only person I have loved in my life, setting aside a bit parents and kids and their kids. And I have admired and loved you almost since the day we first met at Cornell some 56 years ago. What a treat it has been to watch you progress to the very top of the legal world. I will be at Johns Hopkins Medical Center until Friday, June 25th, I believe. And between then and now, I shall think hard on my remaining health and life and whether on balance the time has come for me to tough it out or take leave of life because the loss of quality now simply overwhelms. I hope you will support where I come out, but I understand you may not. I will not love you one jot less. Marty. Unbelievable. And then, as you say, David, your second husband, advises that he come home and he passes right. away. But to a cheerier note, you meet David and you have this whirlwind uh, relationship and you decide to marry and you ask Ruth if she would marry you. And let me ask you this. Did Ruth Bader Ginsburg like performing weddings? Oh my God. She loved performing weddings. At least she did for friends, relations, you know, law clerks, people like that. She often would get requests from people. She would roll her eyes. You know, why, why would they think that I should do this? But for people that she liked and cared about, and there were a lot of those people and their children, she loved performing weddings to the point that very near the end of her life, very near the end of her life, she was uh, in the hospital because she'd had some sort of a blockage that they were dealing with. And she came home and she was supposed to do the wedding ceremony for her doctor, Beth Horowitz's son and now daughter-in-law. And it was going to be at, at Ruth's apartment at the Watergate because she really was very weak at that point. And she came home from the hospital that day and she was beating up the doctor saying, you have to let me out of here. I have a wedding to perform. So <laughs> finally they let her go and she came home and she took a nap and a bit later than usual or than it was expected. But Beth Horowitz, Dr. Horowitz was not at all sure she could manage this. Suddenly down the stairs comes Ruth with some light makeup on in high heels walking down and they go outside on the little terrace out in her apartment and she performs this lovely wedding service and there was not a dry eye there I am told I was not there it was just just the Horowitz family and I'm assuming the grooms the bride's family as well but it was very small and it was you know it we didn't have vaccines for COVID yet then she died in September of 2020. We didn't have a vaccine yet. Mm. But this is what made her so special. This big heartedness when yeah. it came to doing what was important to others. I had a mentor in law, Alan Raywood, his name it was, he passed away. And he used to say, honor that which is important to others. And even if it's not important to you, honor that which is important to others. And 
she was an, an example, a living example of that throughout her life, it would seem. Yeah, she really was. And she enjoyed it. And, you know, when she married David and me, she sent me some of the uh, ceremonies that she had performed before, the, what she had written for the ceremony and asked me if there was anything special that I wanted her to say. Now, of course, there was. I wrote the ceremony incorporating, I rewrote, I didn't take any of her ceremonies, but I rewrote, I wrote a ceremony incorporating some of what she liked, obviously, to say, because they were recurring themes, and what I wanted to have said at the wedding. And I thought she would use it as a, you know, a framework, which she did. But she had everything in it. I mean, there was nothing left to chance, including her jokes. And so David had called her up to ask if it was really legal um, because he had gotten it into his head that federal judges can't perform wedding ceremonies. And they, they can't normally in most states, but they can in the District of Columbia because it's a federal city. And so she assured him it would be legal. And so in the ceremony, and I, I, I can't recall it verbatim, but she said, at the end, she said, and now, David, by the power vested in me, by the Constitution and the Congress of the United States, I, <laughs> I, I pronounce you uh, husband and wife. Yay. So these past 22 <laughs> years, you've been legal. Yes. These last 22 years, we've been legal. <laughs> so I, I want to talk a little bit about Ruth becoming a Supreme Court justice. In 1993, Byron White announces his retirement and Clinton is given an opportunity to appoint. So tell us a little bit about the decisioning around the appointment of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and some of the pushback that she faced, not only because of her age, but also because of her her position on Roe v. Wade. Well, it's very interesting, and it's it's worth remembering now in the time when we are so intolerant of any difference in opinion, often of things we think are important. So, Clinton had interviewed and would was interested in having a politician, somebody who'd been in elected office, be on the Supreme Court because they would know about the life of policymaking. But he got turned down by Mario Cuomo and George Mitchell, then the Senate Majority Leader, or who had been the Senate Majority Leader. And it, it just kept going. And he was, he was fishing around for somebody. And finally, uh, Pat Moynihan called him. I think at the behest of Marty Ginsburg and said, you know, you really ought to interview Ruth Ginsburg. And Clinton said, well, the women don't like her because she had given a couple of speeches in which she criticized the grounds for Roe v. Wade, the legal reasoning of Roe versus Wade, not the idea that women have the right to determine their own bodily autonomy, but the, what the grounds were. And so some of the women's groups were not thrilled with this idea. But Marty sort of orchestrated a, a campaign for Ruth. And finally, uh, 
Clinton had his his counsel call her up and ask her if she could come for an interview. And she was on her way to Vermont for a wedding <laughs> and uh, asked if she could come the next day. And uh, Bernie Nussbaum, the White House counsel said, sure. And on that morning she went and she was interviewed by President Clinton. And he, according to everybody I talked to in the White House, he fell for her hook, line and sinker he called her that night and offered her the job. And it's one of the few times that I know of that Ruth cried, really cried with joy in this case. And he said the next morning they had a big announcement thing in the Rose Garden of the White House. I remember being there in the front row. It was pretty, it was pretty amazing as I'm frantically taking notes about what she's saying. And she later said that it was the only time that she got to write something without the White House handlers reviewing it. <laughs> and what she wrote was retold in your book. And there's a part of it where she's speaking about her mom. And she says, and I quote, I pray that I may be all she would have been had she lived in an age when women could aspire and achieve and daughters are cherished as much as their sons. It was, a, you know, for somebody like me, uh, who was, uh, I was already an accomplished reporter by then, but I had, was not fooled about my ascendance being unique to me. I had already seen a huge change in the way women functioned and were treated in the workforce. And it really gave me goosebumps when she said that. You wrote in the book at some point, you said uh, that your friendship, your and Ruth's friendship worked because we each sensed just how hard the other had to fight to climb the ladder to get where you each were. Yeah. So she's appointed to the court and uh, it's interesting in these days of Dobbs, that which overturned Roe v. Wade, that Ruth's thinking about, she was thinking that Roe should have been predicated on a liberty interest, not the privacy interest that Justice Blackmun founded on. And that's the basis upon which the, the current court decided that the reasoning was flawed. So, and she, in fact, she had a case, did she not? She had a case that was supposed to be argued that same term, along with Roe versus Wade. Um, she had a client who was an Air Force officer, a woman who was pregnant. The military at the time had a policy that if you were got pregnant and you're, you're a woman, you're pregnant, you had to have an abortion if you wanted to stay in the military. And this woman, Susan Strzok, did not want to leave the military. She had found people who would adopt her child, but she, that was the policy. So she went to the ACLU and Ruth Bader Ginsburg was her lawyer and she lost all the way up to the Supreme Court. And then the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case in the same term that it was planning to hear Roe. But the administration, I think realized that this was a policy that really would could not be defended easily 
and certainly was, would be difficult to defend. Um, usually these abortions were conducted in, uh, I think, bases overseas. And so they caved. They said, you can stay, you can keep the kid, you can have, you can stay in the military. And so there was no more case. And she always felt that if that case had been paired with Roe, it would have had a much more uh, firm grounding. And it was a typically Ruthian case, as I used to say, because she took somebody, you know, often in her earlier cases, she represented men clients who were discriminated against based on gender. So classically, the guy whose wife dies in childbirth, and she was the main breadwinner of the family, but he did not get social security benefits for the kid. Uh, and the, it had it been reversed, and he had died, in fact, his widow would have received those benefits. So this was a case of a woman who wanted to, did not want to have an abortion. She wanted to keep her child and have the child, at least. And it is the ultimate flip of the coin to show why, as Ruth saw it, this was an example of a woman's ability to make a choice. It didn't matter what the choice was. You can have the choice to have an abortion or to not have an abortion, but it is the woman's choice. And that would have set up a decision on equal protection, liberty-based foundation for that right of, of choice rather than this implied right of privacy, which right. uh, many people had wondered about, even proponents of choice, was there you could imply that right of privacy as easily as you could have a liberty equal protection clause. But as they say, the rest is is history and we'll have to deal with it. You detail Ruth's valiant efforts to survive when she gets a new diagnosis of cancer and a resurgence of not just the lung cancer, uh, but the more serious cancer that she had. You write of it that you do not think Ruth would have fought so hard to live if Trump were not president and she were not trying to make it to the 2020 election. She really wanted to hang on till the 2020 election. Yeah. She, she once said to me in that year, she said, you know, I can't live forever, but she was trying her best to live at least past the election when it would have been really hard, almost indefensible. I think if Biden won, which it, in the end he did, if she were to die after the election, but before a new democratic Congress was sworn in, I suppose they might have tried, but it would have been much more difficult to uh, to do that. So she, her objective was to get past the election, which she hoped the Democrats would win. And I, I never had a, a conversation about this, but you know, I could see that she was weak, sometimes more weak than other times. Her mind always was just brilliant. I mean, it was she never dropped a stitch mentally, as far as I could tell. But her frame, her body was failing her. And so I, I could see that she was in a lot of pain a great deal of the time. 
I knew at least that much because she never, you know, she'd had shingles a couple of years earlier and never, although the blisters went away, the pain never did because she waited too long to get it diagnosed in typical Ruth fashion. She didn't ever ask anybody about this terrible rash that she had for like two weeks. And there is a syndrome where you just don't get over the pain. Yeah, the nerve pain. The nerve pain. And that just remained with her for the rest of her life. And there were all kinds of things I did know just from being with her that she'd been to the that they were keeping her teeth together with spit and bailing wire. And I mean, it was really, I know Ruth well enough. I knew her well enough to know that she would have been able to pack it in earlier if she weren't trying so hard to make it to the election. Mm. The last song on the last Beatles album, Let It Be, is called The End. And the last line of the last song on the last Beatles album reads, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. And she took and made a lot of love. I, I take it. Really it did. I mean, I can't tell you the number of people who, I think everybody who was a friend of Ruth's, we all, each of us thought we had a special relationship with her. And in some ways we did because it wasn't like anybody else's, but there were far more of us. It wasn't just her children and her law clerks and her early colleagues from the ACLU Women's Project. It was hundreds of other people who she befriended. I mean, there was a guy who wrote to me who was in the IT department at the Supreme Court, and he was assigned to teach her how to use this, a, a new computer that had been, I don't know what. And so he was assigned to teach her how to do this so that she could operate at home as well as at the court. And he turned out to be an opera fan and that he also sang in a lot of, you know, Gilbert and Sullivan things and that sort of. And she, from him teaching her, they developed a relationship. And periodically, if she had an extra ticket to the opera, she would call him up and say, I have an extra ticket. Would you like to come with me? So, and he wrote me, you know, probably several pages worth of remembrances about her that I absolutely would have put in the book if I'd known about it. But of course, I probably would have written a thousand page tome if everybody that I didn't know about had a chance to tell me about the things that she did for them. So volume two of this book, which you've sworn not to write, of course, <laughs> should, should be like the wall of the Vietnam um, War Memorial. It should be letters I received about Ruth. And it could just be a compendium of, of letters. <laughs> I, suppose, I suppose so. <laughs> so Ruth dies on the eve of Rosh Hashanah. Right. And, and there's a thought about that. What's the Jewish thinking about dying on the eve of Rosh Hashanah? And then if you wouldn't mind, would you read us again that which you tweeted so talk a little bit about that. So the next morning, the morning after she died, I wrote on Twitter, a Jewish teaching says that those who die just before the Jewish New Year are the ones God has held back until the last moment because they were needed most and were the most righteous. And so it was that hashtag RBG died as the sun was setting last night, marking the beginning 
of Rosh Hashanah. It's wonderful. And she is laid in repose in the Supreme Court, but not so in the rotunda. Uh, she has to be, she's laid in repose in statutory hall. What was that about? Uh, I mean, I was, it's just sort of incomprehensible to me because it's, but it is, you know, weeks before the election, the 2020 election. And Senator McConnell will not give his agreement to have her casket placed in the rotunda. So Nancy Pelosi made sure it was placed on the House side, in the center part of the House side of the Capitol. And it tells you a lot that all of her colleagues were at that ceremony, including the conservative ones, and none of the leadership of the House and Senate Republicans were there. It tells you everything you need to know, honestly. You write in conclusion of our conversation that from her early struggles and her later ones, she understood better the plight of people who were less fortunate. Nothing came easy in her life, not getting a job as a lawyer, not becoming a judge, and for two decades, there were constant health challenges. I don't know if any of these obstacles helped make her a kinder person, but the entire time that I knew her, she was truly and deliberately kind. Yeah, she really was. And, you know, she she liked being a Supreme Court justice. She loved being a Supreme Court justice. She loved being an icon suddenly in her 80s. But that said, nothing diminished her kindness. She never was an uppity person. Mm. She was always a kind one. The book is called Dinners with Ruth, a memoir on the power of friendships. It's a wonderful read. We've just scratched the surface of the wonders of this book. So Nina Totenberg, I'm grateful for you having written it. And I'm more grateful for you having appeared with me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Michael, for having me. And congratulations on meeting the deadline. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.